This is David Tarkington, lead pastor at First Family. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For more information about our church, go to firstfam.org or check out my blog at davidtarkington.com. Matthew 16, verse 1. Jesus has just fed a bunch of people, and here we continue in the story. Verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, Jesus They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. If you read the message, it probably says, red sky at night, sailor's delight. Just kidding. Play along with me. You didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? That's where that comes from. He knows that. So he says, you guys know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring the bread or any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves or the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about the bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. There's an old phrase that's been around since the time of the ancient Greeks, and it has become kind of a, a, a mantra of sort for nations and foreign policy. And it is this, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And we've seen that played out in politics and in nation building and wars throughout centuries. In fact, uh, at the beginning of the onset of World War II, really prior to World War II kind of jumping off, but Hitler was already in, in uh, leadership and in control of, of Nazi Germany, there was a time when the Soviet Union were more, more or less allies with Nazi Germany. It didn't last long, but they were allies with Nazi Germany. And that seems odd for those of us that you know, at least know the history and have seen the pictures of the big three of Stalin and Roosevelt and Churchill. Well, what's he doing over there? Well, it didn't take long for them to realize that Hitler was no friend, and Hitler did not have much to, uh, no, no benefit for the USSR at the time, and, uh, and actually was an enemy of the USSR. And so what happened is Stalin and the, and the Soviet Union, and there's a much deeper story, you can read the history of all this and the polit- political intrigue and that, but let's just simplify it and say uh, they jumped ship and they came over, he came over and, and allied up with uh, Great Britain and the United States. And so the big three were formed, and eventually, of course, the Allies, uh, we won that war. But when the war ended, when World War II ended and VE Day and VJ Day and all that had taken place, it did not take long, probably about until noon, that we discovered uh, that we were in another war. It was not as hot war, it was a cold war. And all of a sudden this ally, the Soviet Union, became an enemy or was an enemy maybe all along. But nevertheless, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And as long as Nazi Germany was the target, that Soviet Union and the U.S. and Great Britain worked together. But once that common enemy disappeared, well, you kind of turned on each other at that point. And many of you, as, as I did, grew up in an era where the Cold War was how, how things were just known to be. It was normative for us. 
Well, to get away from the political illustration and the military illustration, just recognize that this partnership between enemies is not just relegated to military and nations. It also happens in the world of religion. And at the time of Jesus and his day in the Jewish world of Israel, you've got to remember that, that, that Israel was uh, an occupied nation, the Roman Empire the Caesar was the king, and he, the Roman military was the military of the area. The Roman government controlled the economy of the area. Uh, the, the, the religious aspect, they allowed the Jews to keep their religion, and mainly just so they didn't have to send more soldiers over. And so the Jewish religious machinery of the day was represented by two groups, two factions, And these two factions were not really enemies, so to speak, because they claimed to worship the same God, but we'll call them uh, frenemies, maybe. They weren't really that close, and they had differing beliefs, and in synagogues and in in, in political areas and in, in public areas, they would often be at each other because debate would happen all the time anyway. But they were not necessarily friends, and And so these two groups were represented, um, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and together they represented the Sanhedrin. Now, you may not be into all of that history of that, but it matters. It comes back up during the... During the, the, the Christmas story, obviously, you see the Sanhedrin, or the, the Easter, the, the uh, crucifixion, you see the Sanhedrin there as well. And so you have this ruling council for the Jews, and they oversaw the religious lives of, Israel, of, of the Israelites, while the Roman government kind of oversaw everything else. And yet, here's what I want us to, to kind of get, if we can kind of thrust ourselves back 2,000 years ago in a culture none of us live in, which is going to be very hard. And you have to find something comparative to kind of understand what's going on. We look at it through a lens from the 21st century of evangelical or Baptist church, American Christianity. We look back and go, well, they're Sadducees and Pharisees. They're basically the same thing, right? Well, we would say that maybe, but the Jews of the day in Israel would be appalled that you would declare that these two groups were the same type of people. Uh, Here's a good example. In our nation today, I don't know if you're aware of this, but we have two predominant political parties. You may or may not be aware of this. And in our nation today, with these two predominant political parties, now this is, this, is, this is kind of touchy right now. Some of you are going, where's he going with this? You know, because, you know, once this starts happening, you know, this is how churches grow through division. So, so in our nation today, we have these two predominant political parties who have self-identified themselves as polar opposites of the other one. That's fair to say, right? They picked opposite colors. They picked animals. They have different leaders. And they have different platforms, and they have different philosophies. And while there's a lot of merging in the middle on the extremes, they're pretty, pretty far away from each other. And so to, it, it would be like us, what we're saying, hey, the, San, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they're basically the same. That's kind of how the world sees the American political system. Now, I've been to Europe a few times. I've talked to some folks that live there. I've got some missionary friends that live there, and it's interesting to get a perspective on that. I'm not saying try just a different perspective. And here's a comment, a conversation I had with somebody. They said, you know, in America, you guys think your political ideology is so far apart. You've got your conservatives and your liberals, and never shall the twain meet. He said, but from our perspective over here on this side of the pond, there's no difference between your conservatives and your liberals. They're the same people. 
Now, to somebody embedded in the political worldview of the American lifestyle, you know, whether that means you can't get off Facebook and you comment on everything or you just have a, a, a view, that is appalling to some. They, how, how dare they say we're the same? But from a, from a global perspective, here's what they say. They say from a global perspective, when we see conservative, we see Krzyzewski, we see communist dictator, we see uh, Castro, we see, you know, from that version, extremism, you disagree, you're put to death. Extreme liberalism, we see Sweden, Netherlands, you know, some of the, the Norwegian nations that have, you know, euthanasia and all these things. It's no big, you know, so it's like way over here. It says, so in America, when we look at you guys compared to what we live with in the rest of the world, it looks like you guys are like right here. Now, that's just hard for most Americans to even grasp. Some of you will walk away mad at that and hear nothing else I say. My word is, get over that. There's much more to the message. That's just an illustration. My point is, as we look back through the lens of history, we go, Sadducees, Pharisees, same thing, right? And to first century Jew, they're going, are you kidding me? Same thing? No way. The fact these guys are in the same room and can have coffee is a miracle. They're polar opposites. We have a hard time grasping that, but they were very different in that world at that time, in that culture. Here, here's, here's a little breakdown on that, just to kind of, so we can figure out where they fit. If you figure, if you see the Sanhedrin kind of like, you know, a religious congress, or maybe the Senate and the House, or something like that, and you see the Pharisees and the Sadducees as different parties that rarely will cross the, the aisle, maybe it'll help you understand the division that's there. And so the Pharisees would be considered the ultra-conservative, to the point of legalism. They held to strict observance of the law, but what they did to, in failure is they elevated the traditions of man as equal to or, or, or uh, super um, over the law, where the law would be subservient to that. That's what Jesus nailed them on. You remember the story we talked about a few weeks ago where the Pharisees were so upset that Jesus' disciples weren't washing their hands? Remember that? So that's talking about, you know, making a mountain out of a molehill and missing the point. That's what they did. And they, they were so focused on the, these rules for everybody, they were the self-righteous group. They were the most holy people in the room, just ask them. And they felt their purpose on the planet was to honor God by telling everybody else how they didn't measure up and making sure everybody behaved. So there's one half on this side of the aisle. On the other side of the aisle in the Sanhedrin, you have the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are Jewish as well, and they worship the God of the Old Testament as well, but they have different understandings and different beliefs. By and large, the Sadducees had more money too, so they were more upper class than the Pharisees, but don't miss out. They both had quite a bit. But the Sadducees would be the more liberal group, they were more political and the more aspirational and they had more influence in the community and they lived um, under, not self-righteous, if self-righteous describes the Pharisees, self-indulgent describes the Sadducees. Because the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then this is all there is, live it up. Why not be self-indulgent? So in their, their doctrine, their theology was all about the now. This is all there is. So these two groups are easy to criticize from the 21st century. It's easy to look at them and go, oh my goodness, how extreme, how extreme. 
But the warning to us today as we look in our history, as we look in biblical accounts and we categorize these people and we try to find modern counterparts, is be careful not to find modern counterparts and believe they're all other people. Because sometimes the modern counterparts of the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the counterparts that are staring us back in the mirror. Because it's very easy to become the legalist and be the most righteous. And it's very easy to be all about the now. It doesn't take much work to sin. And that was this group, this Sanhedrin. So what happens here is the Sanhedrin gets a representative group together of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I don't know if they rode together or what, I doubt it. But they went and they encountered Jesus because, why? The enemy of my enemy, (laughs) or I may have said it wrong, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, maybe that's it. And in their warped perspective, even though they didn't like each other, they both really didn't like Jesus, so they could be on the same page for that. So they would cross the aisle and lock arms and sing, God bless Israel, and then they would go encounter Jesus amazing that these two religious groups that were focused on serving God when they encountered him were opposed to him when he was right in their face they were opposed to him and it went both ways because Jesus in his spiritual bluntness would call them out for who and what they were in love for the purpose of restoration but he would call them out nonetheless. So they were opposed to Christ. They were opposed to Christ because of what Christ revealed about them. And when he criticized them, he criticized them for their self-righteousness and their self-indulgence. So they come to him serving God with a question. And the scripture says they came asking for a sign. Now Jesus is never, as we see in scripture, and by the way, not every Pharisee you know, gets ignored like this because Nicodemus would have been categorized as that. And when Nicodemus had an honest question, what did Jesus do? He answered honestly and gave him the time and gave him the truth. But when the questions are asked that are not really questions but are just setups for traps, Jesus has no time for that. Empty debates that just run in circular motion here. That's what's happening. And they said, we need a sign from you. And Jesus and his blunt, let me just get to the point, let me just tell you what it is, looks to them and says, evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. They always have, they always will. And there is no sign except the sign of Jonah. That's pretty clear. He's like, I ain't giving you a sign. We've already given you a sign. The sign goes all the way back to the Old Testament. That's kind of like the Christian today who says, man, I just want to find God's will for my life. I just want it like it's some kind of Indiana Jones crusade, right? I want to find his will for my life. I just need a sign from God. And it's as if God is saying, I've already given you a sign. Every sign you need, already given it to you. No new signs, no New Testaments, no added books, nobody. I don't care what the guys on your front doorstep say. There's not an additional testament to the word of God. This is it. Full and complete. And here's your sign. There's Joe Ingvall, the great theologian. Here's your sign, right? Or Bill Ingvall. Yeah, Bill Ingvall. There it is. And that's what he says to him. He says, I'm not going to give you another sign. You've already got the sign of Jonah. What does that sign from Jonah mean? It means this. He said, remember Jonah? Jonah was swallowed by a big fish. Jonah, at one point, did not want to do what God wanted him to do. So the fish swallows him up, and he's in the fish for three days, and he is then out of the fish, and he goes... And he follows what God told him to do. Now, the rest of the story gets really weird. It's one of the oddest books in the Old Testament. But what Jesus does in this statement affirms the reality that the Jonah fish story is not a fairy tale. And he says, Jonah was in the fish for three days. I'm going to be in the ground for three days. 
Just like Jonah went to an evil and adulterous generation that does not deserve God, so too have I come to an evil and adulterous generation that does not deserve God. I will die, I will rise again. That's the fullness of the gospel. And then he looks at the Pharisees and Sadducees and says, there you go, and he walks away. That's it. I mean, you can spend like a month on that whole Jonah thing, but I just want you, that's it, he left. It's an interesting interaction, but let me just get to this next section because there are sections in Scripture that there are verses that are part of my favorite verses of Scripture. There are verses that, that are life verses, you know, people pick, and they, this is my life verse, you know, I, I like all of them, so I'll just pick all of them, but, you know, some people like one. Um, and then there are passages you read in Scripture, and you're going, I like this. Why do I like this? Because I connect with these, these guys in this story. It's not me putting myself in the story. It's not that. I'm not elevating myself. It's just that I read this story about the disciples, and I'm going, these are the disciples chosen by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that, that day of Pentecost, and they went to jail, and they turned the world upside down. They were martyred for their faith. That's these guys. But at this point, I'm going, they're a whole lot like me. Because at this point, they don't look real smart. That's what I'm looking at. I'm going, I get it. And this passage, now, the end of John, John's gospel says, if everything paraphrase, if everything Jesus did, if all the miracles he did, if everything he said were written down, there's not enough ink on the planet, not enough paper on the planet, there's not enough books to put them in. Which makes me wonder, of all those incredible stories, why this one gets in the Bible? Why this one? Because it seems like filler. It seems like some random story about just Jesus and the disciples talking about food. Let's look at it one more time here because this is, this is important. He pulls them aside. They go to the other side of the lake, perhaps. They're always getting in boats, it seems like. And, and something begins to happen in this conversation. Let, let me ask you it this way. Have you ever been to a party or a Sunday school fellowship or something at work maybe or just a gathering where there's a crowd and you show up and you're invited. It's not like you're not supposed to be there, but there's a conversation going on and there are people laughing at stuff, and it doesn't take long for you to figure out, you have no idea what they're talking about. So what do you do? You do what most people do. You hold your styrofoam cup in the corner, and you laugh when everybody else laughs, and hope you figure it out later, right? Because you don't know what's going on. There's a whole bunch of inside stories, a whole bunch of, it's kind of like going to a movie 15 minutes late. You ever find that? You know, you you prepaid your ticket, so you're definitely going, but you get there, you're 15 minutes late, you walk in, story's already going on, and it takes you 15 more minutes to figure out who these people are you're supposed to already know. Maybe this helps. Some of our students in here can relate to this. So we have school started, high school, junior high. All the schools just started here a few weeks ago. And so I'm thinking back high school, maybe junior high, this it even goes to that. But especially in high school, there are certain classes that have ones and twos after them, right? I just remember something like Algebra 1. Algebra 1, you take Algebra 1, and once you get through Algebra 1, the next year or next semester, you get the joy of Algebra 2, right? And so I just, I, th this happens sometimes in school. So maybe some of our students can relate. You take one of those classes, and this is not a shot against uh, all the teachers we have here because they, we're talking about all those other teachers. Let's make sure you got this. So you got Algebra 1 or Super Hard Class 1, whatever it is. I, I can relate. There's a reason I'm not an accountant besides that I can't add is that, is that Accounting 2 about killed me. That's why. But Accounting 1, it's so easy. Accounting 2, all right, go into the ministry. Um, and get somebody else on the finance committee that can add. So we kind of do that. 
But, but in high school, just imagine, you, so you got this teacher, you got Algebra 1, you love the class. Teacher's really nice. I mean, just a nice teacher. It makes a joy. It's one of those fun classes. The problem is you don't learn squat, right? You just don't. Everybody gets an A, you know, it's just, or, or a B, and the teacher, you know, just kind of going through the motions. There's all, I mean, and that, it's that teacher, right? So then you get, sign up for the next year, and you get the second half of this math deal, and you get a really good teacher. And I mean a teacher who's like going to prepare you for the rest of your life teacher. Means this, it's probably not a fun class, but you're going to learn, and it's going to challenge you, and you need this. But you find out on day one that it feels like you just jumped on a moving train. As the teacher says something like this, well, I know you guys were all in Algebra 1 last year, so you all should be up to speed on this, so we're just going to start with this. And then they write something on the board, and you're staring at it going, what in the world is that? And you're realizing at that moment there is a conversation going on in that classroom that you, you don't even know the language. You don't know what they're talking about. You're, you're sitting there just staring and going, oh, your, your prayer life increases at that moment, Right? If you're in college, if it's a college course, what you're doing right there on your phone or on your laptop is looking up the drop date. That's what you're doing. I got to get out of this class. And I used to, you know, it used to feel sorry for students that find themselves in those situations, but we don't anymore. Thanks to YouTube and Google, you can catch up and it's on you. So you look at that and you go, I don't know what's happening. It's like I'm in a conversation, but I don't know enough to know what I'm talking about. And so you're just kind of in there. And I look at these disciples in this, in this story, and that's what they are. There's a story happening. There's an intense conversation. There's something they're supposed to get, but they don't get it. It's like they, don't, they, weren't, they, they weren't listening. They weren't, did we miss something here? So here we have Jesus and the disciples. They're on the other side, whether it's on a boat or wherever. They're, they've made it to the other side. And, and um, you got to remember this too. It took place about you know three or four months after Jesus fed five thousand men plus women and children, had a bunch of leftover food, and it was probably a week after, a few days after he just fed four thousand men plus women and children, had a bunch of leftover food. Just put that in the back of your mind, because here's verse five: When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. So I don't know if you're a, a put a verse on a t-shirt kind of person, but I think you ought to put that one on there. That's just some random verse taken totally out of context. That'll change your life, won't it? The disciples forgot bread. Amen? Let's just dwell on that for about an hour. It's an odd verse. Now, why is this a big deal? They get to where they're supposed to go, and they realize, and if you, if you just kind of put yourself in that situation. The panic comes on their face. And we look at it from our perspective, that's not that big a deal. No, it's apparently a big deal. Why would they need bread? This is not deep got to eat. They want a sandwich. They're hungry. They don't have any bread. They get to where they're going to go. It's kind of like, like this. My, um, my brother and his family, his daughter and his son and wife, they came to visit my mom and dad while I was there this summer in Tennessee. So they live in Nashville. It's about a two-hour drive to Paris, Tennessee and West Tennessee. And so they get out of the car and about 15 minutes after they get out, here's my niece who's a sixth grader, I think. And she's like, you know, hey, yeah, sixth grader. And um, she, she said, I forgot my shoes. That's like, I looked to her, my brother, and I said, she don't have any shoes? He goes, yeah, apparently of an hour and 15 minutes into the drive, she thought it'd be a good time to let us know that she forgot her shoes. I said, how long are you staying? Two days. Oh. <laughs> That's West Tennessee, no big deal. So, 
just as long as you got pajamas, you can go to Walmart. Everything's cool. So um, she didn't have her shoes. And I'm like, oh, how'd you forget your shoes? Well, I don't know. I just, I just forgot. And when did you realize it? Oh, you know, about an hour into our drive. And it's kind of weird. It's kind of funny. But I'm thinking about these disciples. They they're get to where they're supposed to go. And they're like, hey, you got the bread? What bread? I, I wasn't supposed to bring the bread. Nathaniel's bringing the bread. Nathaniel, do you have the bread? Thaddeus, Thaddeus, where's the bread? I got the bread last time. Nobody has bread? Ask John. John never has to bring the bread. What? Where's the bread? And they're getting all bent out of shape because no one brought bread. And they're getting hungry. And someone's job was to bring bread. We know that's the case. And somewhere on the other side of wherever they started is a cooler or a bag with bread in it. And no one picked it up. And it says when they reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring bread. Jesus said to them, now this is what I find very funny. In the midst of this, Jesus is still, I don't think he's stewing over it, but he has just encountered the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he is, he is going to, there's a teachable moment right here. He says this to them in his Jesus voice, which means you better listen, this is important. He says, watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, which apparently, based on verse 7, meant that the disciples thought, oh man, are we in trouble. Because their verse says, they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. We brought no bread. If you can kind of think about those 12 guys sitting there, they're worried, they're concerned, and Jesus randomly says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And you know one of the disciples went, go, he knows. He knows we ain't got no bread. He knows it. He knows I was supposed to bring that. He's, oh, we are in so much trouble. Don't say anything. Maybe he'll, he knows. Why would he say that about leaven? And all they can think about is the bread. All they could think about is the bread. They didn't get it. Jesus wasn't talking about bread. Beware of the leaven. And it became really, probably really quiet at that moment, and they're kind of mumbling over here to the side. And and it it just, as I read this, I I kind of put my, I'm I'm thinking of another time. I I was thinking when we went, I went to Toronto the first time with, uh, Neil Jimenez and uh, Tim Larson it was an associational trip, and, and Walter Bennett went with us. And, and, and lo and behold, you know, many of you know Walter. Walter was our interim pastor here about in 2004. So he's on this trip with us. And so we flew to Buffalo. We're driving to the border crossing, which is near Niagara Falls. I'm driving, and I lean back to the guys in the car. I said, man, it's going to be a fun trip. Get to Pray what God, see what God's doing up here, this, that, and the other. So go ahead and hand me your passports. To which Walter Bennett said, passport? <laughs> yeah, passports. He said, they didn't need a passport. Last time I came through, I just drove over. I said, when was that? Uh, 88? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was this little thing called 9-11. Changed a whole bunch of rules. Just, yeah, you need your passport. Did you not get the email? Yeah. I don't think I read it. Yeah. Anyway, he got in. I don't know how. He's still there. We never got him out. No, he's <laughs> we got him out. He got out too. He just felt sorry for us. You know, just let him out. Just come on. Just come. But we we never let him live that down. By the way. But um, I, I think about it kind of like that moment in the car as I'm pulling up to the guy in the in the border security booth, and I'm thinking, what do I say to this guy? I can't lie. I can't fake it. He doesn't have one, but here's his driver's license. That's good enough. Go through. 
How in the world did that happen? Um, and I think about the disciples. They're sitting there going, oh, he knows, he knows, he knows. And of course Jesus knows. And of course he hears what they're talking about. And so they're saying, oh, we don't have any bread, and he knows we don't have any bread. And verse 8, Jesus says this, aware of this, I love that, like he's never unaware. Or he says, oh, you of little faith, what are you discussing among yourselves? Why are you discuss- discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Now, I love this, Jesus, the logical. I call this sermon the clarifying. He's clarifying a bunch of stuff, but here's the logical thing right here. Verse 9, do you not perceive, don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets did you get? I mean, I love the question and answer. You remember back in the spring, guys? Yeah, I remember Jesus. Remember there were 5,000 men plus women and children? Yeah, we were there. Remember when you went and gathered the food and then I blessed it and you ended up feeding 5,000 people out of just a little bit of bread and fish? Yeah. How many baskets did you have left over? 12. Cool. Do you remember last week, next verse, there were 4,000 men. There were some women and children. I think we had what, seven loaves? Seven loaves at the time? Yeah, seven loaves. Yeah. We fed everybody, right? Yeah. How many did you have left over? Seven baskets. Hmm. Verse 11. How is it then, knowing this, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's as if Jesus is saying, if I wanted bread, I can make bread. I have no issue with bread. Every time bread has been needed, bread has been available. In the Old Testament, we made it come out of the sky. In the New Testament, I blessed it and fed 5,000, 10,000, 4,000, 8,000. I mean, I, we, we have bread. And you're sitting over here worried about the bread committee that didn't fulfill their job. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, what is leaven? Leaven is yeast. It's, a, it's like a yeast, just a little bit. Just put a little bit of leaven in the bread, and it'll turn your pizza dough into a biscuit, right? It'll change everything. A little bit of leaven kneaded into it will infect the dough so that it rises and looks differently. And when it comes to bread, a little leaven maybe isn't always a bad thing. But when it comes to life, in this illustration, Jesus is illustrating a dire issue that the church must realize. Self-righteousness and self-indulgence. Remember the Pharisees and the the Sadducees? Self-righteousness and self-indulgence. In other words, thinking of yourself too highly or focused only on pleasing yourself are leaven. And when it impacts, infects the church, when it infects your life, even the Christian can fall into this trap, and many do. There are pastors, churches, teachers, and, and all Christians that are on the planet now and all that have ever been have been susceptible to allowing just enough Jesus to give a false assurance of who they are in Christ and, and just live off a of behavioral modification, not a heart transformation. It doesn't take a big lie to mess everything up. It doesn't take much. Just enough, just, just off a little. Just off enough to mess everything up and end up with an ignored gospel or to end up with not the full gospel. Now, distractions are everywhere. We are all faced with distractions all the time. In this case, the distractions were the disciples' worry that they had forgotten bread. And because they were so concerned on that and so focused on that, they could not hear what he was really saying. There is power in the word of God, but there is danger in just having a partial word. You know, 
there are churches, there are pastors, there are teachers, there are writers. And, and let me just say, I, I know and I see what some has posted from church members in our congregation, and it concerns me greatly because some of the false teachers that are in our world today have been puffed up and lifted up by even some of you, and you think, well, what's wrong with that? And I'm telling you what's wrong with that. You're puffing up and you're elevating people who are giving you leaven, not gospel. But lives are being changed. I don't discount that God could speak through a donkey, then he could probably speak through somebody that doesn't teach fully, but I would say this, that there are buildings full of people hearing false gospels, walking away with therapeutic moralism rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ and transformed lives. And where it ends is hell, not heaven. And if we aren't serious about it, we're going to be just kind of sugarcoating everything. Look, look at it this way. I'm not, it's, just, it's just something we've got to catch. We've got to get this. When a husband and wife get married, uh, they say I do, and intentionally, and in a good way, and in a Christian marriage, and to do it the right way, they're, they're, is, they're together. But over time, Dennis Rainey has said this very clearly, over time, drift happens, and husband and wives tend to drift apart. They get busy, they, get cons- they just drift. And that's why, just like getting your car tuned up, you have to get it tuned up. You've got to recalibrate. You've got to get back on the same page. Otherwise, your kids grow up, move out of the house, and you look to that person across the living room, and they're a roommate, not your spouse. And because division happens naturally, and no, most people don't do anything about it, that's why marriage counselors have jobs. I'm just trying to give you a preemptive strike here. Everybody must work on it. I've yet to meet the couple that doesn't happen to. They've got, everyone has to work on it. And when it comes to the doctrine of, of, of the gospel and the theology of who we are as Christians, the Word of God, if we want to just draw, is that baseline. It is foundational. It never changes. It's always the same. The Word has never changed. It is full and complete and inerrant. But what happens is you sometimes have some preachers, teachers, good intentions to begin with, likely. I'm going to give them benefit of the doubt. But just enough moralistic deism seeps in and they're not very far off from the gospel. It's just tiny, just a tiny little bit. Like, here's the gospel, and here's, here's that, that angle going up, just a little bit. But over time, the deeper you get, the further away you get from it. And you end up up here with this feel-good religion or legalistic religion. You end up with it, you're either a Sadducee or a Pharisee. Just enough Jesus to make you feel good. Not enough Jesus to do you any good. And that's what we've got. And, and, and our family joined our church this morning. There's a ton of great churches around, by the way. So we're not the only one. I want to make sure that's very clear. But this family said, man, we just moved up here. We've been visiting, visited about 10, 15 different churches over the last couple months. I said, yeah, that's, there's about a church on every, every 20 yards. You'll probably find another one. They're all over the place. And he said, and, and, and today, he said, it became very clear. A lot of these places we were going, it felt good. Music was great. People were friendly. But it always seemed like there was something missing. Not in all of them, but in some of them. And he said, I think that, that the something missing is was, was there was a little too much leaven in some of that dough. And here's Christ's warning. Be careful of the leaven of the false teachers who have just enough to mess you up. Good intentions are not enough. Oh, you of little faith, why are you talking about bread? That really convicts me because I'm thinking, man, I've been in church my whole life. 
how many man hours have been, how many mission hours have been wasted on conversations about bread? Fill in the blank what the bread is of the day. The things that don't matter in comparison to the gospel. Our calling is from God to see the eternal, not just the temporal. The only, this only occurs when we're walking with Christ, when we have the mind of Christ, when we see how Christ sees. And I will confess that I do not always see the way God sees, that I am not always walking with Christ like I should be. And if I'm confessing that, I, I, I bet there's at least two other in the room probably the same way, that we have good intentions, but sometimes we just kind of, oh, we just get going and we forget. Oh, we forget. And we debate bread. And we seek for signs that aren't going to be given. And then, after all that discouragement, I find this verse at the end of that section in chapter 16 that really made me feel good. And it wasn't about feeling good. It just gave me confidence. It gives me hope. In verse 12, Jesus says, I'm not talking about the leaven. I'm not talking about the leaven of the, of the bread. I'm talking about the Pharisees. I'm talking about the Pharisees. In verse 12, it says, then they understood that right there, just let that just kind of seep in for just a moment. Has there ever been a time in your life, Christians, I'm talking to Christians now, where, you know, you've read a verse over and over again, you got it, you got this verse, but there's that moment where you're like, ah. did they just add that? I never saw that before, right? It's like the, the scales fall off. You see something you've never seen. You hear something you've never seen. You found a verse and you put it in context. We're really bad about this. Here, here's a good example of bad context. Context will kill you, just so you know. You know this little verse that says something about wherever, wherever two or more are gathered, I am there in their presence. You know, I am in their name. You know that? Two or more are gathered. You know how many churches, prayer ministries, have plastered that verse as their theme verse? And let me just go ahead and declare that we do have a prayer ministry, and they pray deeply, and they pray intercede on behalf of you and for others. But that verse is not a prayer ministry verse. And that verse, because taken to the end, look, look, let me just go ahead and throw it this way. Wherever two or more are gathered, I am there with them. What, if you go to the nth degree, what that verse says, and that's a true verse, then that means if you're praying by yourself, God's not there. Right? That means you better find another Christian. Come on, he can't hear me yet. I need you with me. It's like a, you know, stereo. And we're sitting there going, well, that's not right, because he tells us to get in our prayer closet. Oh, you didn't want you to get in the prayer closet and then have to find two other people to join you. That's not how it works. So how in the world are we taking that verse and saying, that's our prayer ministry verse? No. You talk about totally misreading scripture, taking verses out of context, make them look good on a plaque or a t-shirt, and say, holy are us. No. That's a verse about church discipline. Well, I, I, what? Yeah. That's a verse about that subject that most Baptists know nothing about. When Christians within the church stray from the Word of God intentionally and the church must intercede and discipline them in love. Wherever two or more are gathered in my name, I am there and I will cover this. See, church discipline matters, but because church membership is so willy-nilly in most Baptist churches, there's really no value in discipline. We can't do it. That's a sermon for another day. I'll let you just stew over that one on lunch. But the hope I find is this, 
That is, the disciples who were with Jesus 24 hours a day at this juncture, in his presence, hearing him talk, still didn't fully get it every time he said something. And he says, behold, uh, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Always talking about bread. I am not talking about bread, guys. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Oh no, it's about the bread, right, Jesus? Not about the bread. Verse 12, then they understand. And you're like, well, good grief, they should. He said it like five times which is so encouraging to me because I need it more than once. I need to be told more than once. I need to be encouraged more than once. I need to be reminded, okay, David, you didn't get it. Here's what it means. Well, yeah, but anything about that? Let me just see if I can apply that to my life. No, this ain't about applying stuff to your life. This is about truth. Okay, but isn't this about that? No, it's not. But I just want a word for God. No, this is what it says. Now I understand. Then they understood. My prayer for our church, my prayer for you today is this. Is that we put to death moralistic, theistic, deism, Dr. Phil theology or whatever it is that we've got out there that just is designed to make us feel good. That we will stop listening to the Sadducees that are all about live it up now and we will stop listening to the Pharisees that are legalists saying that you're not behaving well enough and we will listen to the word of God and hit alone. Because we're not getting another sign. We've got all we need.